Uh, we come to uh, this passage uh, in Second Timothy as we are beginning to uh, work our way through um, the second epistle of Paul's to his uh, spiritual son, Timothy. Our scripture reading this morning is from uh, verses 8 through 14 of Second Timothy chapter 1. The apostle has written these words. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Let's pray. Father, we read these words of the Apostle Paul to his spiritual son, Timothy. And Father, uh, we thank you for them, first of all. We thank you for giving us your word, communicating your truth to us. And we would pray that as we listen to it, as we work our way through these verses, uh, that you would be by your Holy Spirit, opening up our minds and hearts to understand, but not just to understand, but to take these things in deeply, and that we would heed the warning of uh, the writer James, who says, let's not just simply be hearers of the word without being doers of the word. So help us, Lord, to add obedience to our faith, that we might walk godly and holy in the manner to which you've called us in Christ. So that as we've already prayed this morning in our prayers, that we might be that city set upon a hill, that we might be the salt of the earth, that we might be the light of the world, all to the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> this morning, I want to continue that theme that I introduced last week, or the concept of uh, biographical theology. Uh, it's just a fancy way of talking about how God connects to us in terms of our own personal lives, our own personal stories. Uh, and we can say that essentially uh, our life, our biography uh, has been interrupted by God because before we weren't Christians. Now we are Christians. And in terms of God working with us in that biographical sense, entering into our story, he has claimed us to be part of that greater story, that larger story that is the gospel, the gospel of his son. So it was that idea that I was introducing last week in order to emphasize that, that God is a very personal God. That the religion that we profess, the Christian faith, the Christian religion, is at its core all about relationships. And so in the first chapter, verses 1 through 7, we were able to see that, that God was communicating his truth through Paul in his writing to Timothy and in terms of their relationship in a very personal way. 
with the idea that that when God conveys his truth in the lives of persons, when he put those lives into the New Testament, Paul's life, Timothy's life, he was doing so in order to help us understand, number one, he is the God who is personal. He's tripersonal, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And secondly, that God himself establishes and values these relationships. God gives us relationships that are very precious to us, very significant in our lives, the lives people who, who help edify who we are, who, who strengthen our lives in Christ. Now, that was certainly Paul's relationship to Timothy as a spiritual father. And Timothy's faithful service with Paul was something that gave Paul great joy. So the concept of biographical theology is, is sort of to grab hold of the, the, the personhood, the personalness and personhood of God who also interacts with us as persons to give us that sense of his love and his care for us in all sorts of ways, but especially through the relationships that we have with others. Now, we come to this next section, and biographical theology continues, but here it moves into discussing the topic of grace, because as we were reading through from verses 8 through 14, uh, the idea of grace is dominant. It's the, it's the predominant theme in there. And yet it's also biographical because the Apostle Paul uh, makes reference to himself no less than 10 times in those verses. And even as he uh, re relates to Timothy with respect to this as well. So all of this is to, to help us to see God is a God is deeply personal. The whole sense that we have in the Christian life is that we actually know God through Jesus Christ. We have that personal relationship. And that God is intensely interested in demonstrating to us his love and his grace for us. But it's also not just the vertical, it's, it's in the horizontal as well. What we have in the church, the pillar and buttress of the truth, what we have in our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ is also a provision of God's grace with us and for us and to us. So thinking about these things, I, I'd like to say that we can capture the main theme of this section that we're moving into with using the idea of a, a you know biographical theology we can we can say it this way because god reveals his truth to the church through the personal spiritual lives of paul and timothy the story of their salvation is the story of the grace of the gospel that's the idea that's that's sort of the overarching uh, theme of these verses that we're looking at from 9 through 14. And I've outlined it this way. I've essentially said, let's look at the preamble to grace. That'll be verse 8. Then look at the purpose of grace, which are verses 9, 10, and 11. And then let's look at the protection of grace, which would be 12, 13, and 14, to comprehensively uh, look at uh, this idea that we have here, of the relationship the very relational way in which God works his grace, the grace of salvation in our lives. Now, first then, the preamble to grace. Now, preamble, uh, what I mean here is is, is not uh, some aspect of, of the work of God that comes before grace comes to us. Uh, I'm not talking about salvation here. I'm really talking about uh, preamble to grace in terms of verse 8, what Paul is going to say before he specifically gets into grace. So it's just preamble in sense of that which comes before. And in looking at it that way, I want us to appreciate that uh, Paul is involved here in verse 8, giving us a kind of transitional link between the, um, 
the biography of relationships to the biography of grace with verse eight functioning as a kind of link from one to the other. Uh, but it also is a statement that in many ways stands on its own because of the content of what the Apostle Paul says here. And it begins by noting the figure of speech that we find at the very beginning of verse eight. Notice that verse eight begins this way, where Paul says, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of his prisoner. Now, the figure of speech that begins that uh, statement is, do not be ashamed. Now, technically, this figure of speech is called a litotus, a litotus. Maybe you've never heard that word before. Well, let me explain what it is as a figure of speech. <clears throat> the first part of this definition will help be helpful. First, a litotus is a kind of ironic understatement. It is a way of emphasizing something greatly by understating, by making an understating kind of statement. Now, the second part of the definition goes this way. The affirmative that you want to express, you actually state by the negative of the contrary. Did you get that? <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, I read that definition over several times before I, I actually could see what it was trying to say. Examples make it much more clear. Here's what, what a litotus is. Suppose I were to say to you something like this. You really need to go on this Alaskan cruise with Julie and me. You won't be sorry. Now, that means, of course, that you ought to go on this cruise because you're going to be very glad that you did so. It's going to be something very, very enjoyable. Or here's another example. Suppose someone were to ask, um, is that course in engineering calculus very difficult? And someone responds, well, it's not a walk in the park. So, so you get the idea that, that a litotus is something that is expressed by an understatement of something that's contrary to it. You know, something very, very difficult versus a walk in the park. And so you say, well, it's not a walk in the park to emphasize the fact, yes, it's very, very difficult. Now, the Apostle Paul has uh, an, a, a perhaps a more famous usage of, the, uh, of this figure of speech in the first chapter of the book of Romans. And in fact, it's the exact same figure of speech that he mentions here in verse 8. And then, of course, down in verse 12, he says it again. So think about what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God and its salvation for everyone who believes. Now notice what Paul is saying there. I am not ashamed of the gospel. What he's really saying is, I am very, very uh, much committed to the gospel. I'm enthusiastically committed to the gospel. I am very pleased with the gospel. And so here in verse 8, when Paul says this to Timothy, he's saying to Timothy, when he says, do not be ashamed of our Lord or of me, his prisoner. He's really saying this, Timothy, be absolutely willing and confident and pleased to talk about Christ. Christ, who is our Lord. And then likewise about me, who is Christ's prisoner here in Rome. That is to say, Timothy, be the very opposite of what it means to be ashamed. The cause of Christ is not a cause for shame. 
It is the cause of glory and honor. And look at my imprisonment as a badge of that glory and honor. So that's what Paul is essentially emphasizing to Timothy. Because here's the truth, here's the reality. All Paul had to do to avoid prison was to deny Christ. And in prison right then, all Paul had to do to avoid the coming execution was to deny Christ. But Christ is not worthy of shame, but our highest commitment. And Paul is saying, I have not chosen the path of shame. I'm not chosen to deny Christ, but I will stay in prison and I will face death because Christ is worthy. And Timothy, do not be ashamed of this, but let this be your honor and glory too. Which is why Paul then goes on to say to Timothy, share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. That is, choose to stand with Christ in the face of the persecution that comes with it. Do so in the power that Christ provides. Now, I know this kind of language in some sense may be a forewarning to us of what's happening in the United States of America and the way the culture is moving. We just don't even know what this is going to look like uh, in the years and decades to come. But let's take our eyes off of ourselves for a moment and recognize that in light of the apostles' words here, we have brothers and sisters in China who are being imprisoned because they will not deny Christ. We have brothers and sisters in North Korea who have been imprisoned and beaten and tortured and put to death because they will not deny Christ. We have Christian brothers and sisters in Nigeria uh, in villages that have been Christian for ages and ages who have had Muslim attacks and been forced to either flee or to stand their ground and hold fast for Christ often to their uh, destruction, often to their death. All over the world, there are brothers and sisters in Christ who recognize why we are not ashamed of the Lord Jesus Christ, rather why we exult in Christ, and who are willing to face imprisonment and death because Christ is worthy. Then we move on to consider what is happening in verses 9 through 12, which We've captured with the idea the purpose of grace. So Paul is going to continue here biographically speaking. What he says is that God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. Now, let's let's break this down a little bit. The first thing that Paul is emphasizing is this. God saved us. And then just a short distance later, he will say, not based on our works. So let's bring those two things together. God saved us, and it was not based upon our works, not based upon any righteousness that we might in any sense possess. Of course, when God says, when Paul says that we are saved not by our works, that then means conversely, it is all of grace. It is all of God's grace which is the way he characterized this when he wrote his letter to the Ephesians. In chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, he wrote there, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. 
It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That is to say, God does the saving. It is not at all by our works. It is by grace that we have been saved through faith. But then secondly, what is connected to God saving us is God calling us to a holy calling. Now we see then the purpose of grace. That is, salvation, salvation grace, has a very definite purpose that is beyond simply rescuing us from our sins. It is both a rescue and a redirection. So first of all, we, we recognize that there's no controversy, there's no doubt, there's no really quibble over this. Grace, God's grace, is that which saves us from our sin through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are saved by the cross from the penalty of sin. We are saved by the cross from the condemnation of that sin. We know that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the marvelous grace of our loving Lord. But also because of what Paul says here, we are saved unto, we are saved for, and we are saved so that, namely the purpose, the very purpose that God has in mind. And the Apostle Paul characterizes that purpose here as a holy calling. So what is a holy calling? It means a life that is set apart unto Christ. It means one that no longer conforms to the patterns of this world. It is a life that conforms to the life of service in imitation of Christ. It is, in fact, the description that we find following Ephesians 2, 8, 9, what shows up in verse 10. The purpose is given to us in verse 10, where Paul writes, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That is the purpose of grace. Grace saves us and then sets us apart to a holy calling, essentially a life in which we live to do good works, good works that God has prepared in advance for us to walk in them. Now, it's not unusual for Christians to uh, begin early in life, maybe as they're uh, reaching the end of their college days or all throughout their college days, wondering, what is God's purpose for my life? But it can happen at other times as well. You may have some major change in your life and you ask, what is God's purpose in my life? It may happen at the time of retirement or a career change. What is God's purpose in my life? And the, the scripture would counsel us to always come back to what is fundamentally the case. Our purpose, no matter where God sends us, no matter where God puts us, no matter with who God places us, our purpose is always to do the good works that he's preparing for us to do. And scripturally, those good works is our primary calling in life. Those good works are those things that always conform to and always enable us to work out the meaning and practice of the second greatest commandment. What does it mean to love our neighbors as ourselves? Uh, that question, in the context of, of the people that we work with, the people we go to school with, uh, the neighbors that we shop with, that question, what are the good works that God has called us to do, how to love these neighbors as we would love ourselves, that is always our essential, uh, horizontal 
kind of position or horizontal vocation and calling in this life. It is always the case that God has given us the purpose to do good and to do good for others, beginning with our neighbors that are closest to us, those with whom we live, and then branching out to others and remembering those who are part of our church family, but never forgetting anyone in society that we may have opportunity to help and to care for and minister to and to love. Good works, that's an essential part of the purpose of God's saving grace. Now, from verses 9 through 11, the second half of verse 9 all the way through verse 11, Paul actually goes on to break down the idea of grace into six particular characteristics. And they're all part of the holy calling. They're all part of the nature of the grace that saves us. But six particular aspects to this grace that are so important to build up a full and strong understanding of how the grace of God actually works. We'll go through these very quickly. The first we might designate as a pretemporal grace. That is to say, this grace was given to us, as Paul says in verse 9, given to us before time began, before the ages, before the foundations of the world. That means this grace is actually rooted in eternity. It was given to us before the beginning of time. And secondly, Paul says that it's given to us in Christ Jesus. Now, the order is reversed. That is in the English translation. He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. But notice that before the foundations of the world, God gave us this grace in Christ, which is stating here what Paul said in Ephesians chapter one, verse four, uh, just as God chose us in Christ before the foundations of the world. So it's, it's not only an eternal grace, a pretemporal grace, but it's a grace that is rooted back in eternity in Christ Jesus. But thirdly, then, we see that it is a visible grace. That grace has now been manifested by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. It's, it's a visible grace because it's historically true. God in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, became incarnate. He came into this world. He lived in this world. We have the historical record. We have his biographical accounts in the Gospels. And testimonies to that in the epistles. So the, the grace of God is not just an idea. The grace of God becomes visible in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of Christ, it's fourthly a conquering grace. It is the grace in Christ that has abolished death. We, we cannot uh, overlook or underestimate the significance of this. Because the great penalty that came upon the human race, threatened in Genesis chapter 2, actually happening in Genesis chapter 3, is the separation of human beings from the life that is in God. Scripture makes it very clear that life is found in God. And when the relationship with God is broken, that person has immediately died. And that's the case. Uh, all of those who are running around biologically uh, alive in this world, but are characterized by Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, they're dead in their trespasses and sins. They're separated from the life of God 
They do not have life in them. They actually have death at work in them. The great work of Christ upon the cross was to actually conquer death by the payment of our sins and then to demonstrate he had conquered death by virtue of his resurrection from the dead. So that visible grace manifests itself in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ as, in fact, a conquering grace as well. And then continuing, verse uh, fifthly, we would say that this grace is a revelatory grace. That what does it reveal? Well, we read here that in Christ and what Christ has done, uh, this grace has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The gospel reveals the grace of God that has done these things. It's a message that's to be revealed and proclaimed throughout the entire world. And that leads to the sixth characteristic. This grace is an evangelistic and missionary grace because in verse 11, the apostle says that the purpose of this grace and because of this grace, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. Even his suffering that he's experiencing in the Roman prison This is part of his evangelistic and missionary grace at work. The Apostle Paul, seeing himself as one who has been gripped by this grace, purposed by this grace under good works, and his own particular life, his good works following through the vocations of being a preacher and an apostle and a teacher, and now a prisoner for Jesus in the Roman prison soon to become a martyr for Jesus in terms of facing death under Caesar Nero. So I I want us to appreciate how Paul is very clear that the purpose of grace is both rescue and redirection. That God's purpose of grace is never to save us and simply to leave us in our sinful condition. And yet, when we think about that purpose of grace, that purpose has been largely eclipsed in many ways in the kind of evangelistic preaching that has been part of the American Christian experience over the last 100 years or more. For a good part of the last century, many churches have preached a very, what has been called an easy believism. How do you become a Christian? Well, you become a Christian by... Uh, hearing somebody share the gospel message, maybe in three uh, easy steps, admit that you're a sinner, believe in Christ, and then confess his name. And do this, first of all, in a prayer. Pray the sinner's prayer, and once you pray the sinner's prayer, believe it, and you're a Christian. That easy believism is less than the gospel because it has never proclaimed a gospel that actually rescues us not only from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin. The the, the very thing about the grace of God that makes its marvelous grace is that it doesn't leave us like we were. It, it, It actually comes in and breaks the pattern. It changes us. We go from death to life. And yet many have never been told this that when God saves them and truly saves them, they can expect to see some actual changes in their lives. Maybe not radically overnight, 
But if they continue to pursue Christ and continue to love him and continue to rest in the gospel, uh, they will become less self-centered, more other-centered. They'll be looking not only to their own interests, but to the interest of others. They will find fellowship with godly Christians to be a delight. They will find the word of God to be food to their souls. They will find their, their hearts singing the melodies of the songs of Christ. Real changes. Real changes. That's the purpose of God's grace. And in the context of the, the, the biographical theology that we're talking about, you can look at it this way. When God changes a person from death to life, God is now writing a spiritual biography where the legacy that that person's going to leave at the end of his life is going to be a very different legacy than the first chapters of the first part of his life. The idea that, that God changes us to become those who would love him and those who would live to do the good works that will bring him glory. Because it is by grace that we have been saved through faith. And this is not of ourselves. It is the work of, it is the work of God's grace. It is of him. It is the gift of God. It's not that any of us should ever boast. But then verse 10 says, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now that's the full gospel, the purpose of grace to save us from our sins and to redirect us into life that loves Jesus and loves others. Now, finally, the protection of grace. Verses 12, 13 and 14. The, the biographical truth about grace is this, that by the grace of God, the grace of God in us is protected. Let me say that again, that by the grace of God, the grace of God that is at work within us is protected. Now, this involves a two-part understanding of this concept of protection, which actually the Apostle Paul gives us here. He's going to talk about this protection in two parts. Now, you may be familiar with this aspect of the working of God's grace under the idea of the preservation of the Holy Spirit and the perseverance of the saints. Well, it's those two ideas that the Apostle Paul is going to talk about, but let's look at it in terms of his own words. The first thing we should see, and this is the beginning of verse 12, is that the protection of God's grace is going to become part of the confidence that the Apostle Paul had in Christ to guard that grace in his own life. And therefore, it's confidence in Christ to guard that work of grace in us. So again, we have that same figure of speech where the Apostle Paul says, uh, I am not ashamed because I know who I have. I know whom I have believed. So it's exact opposite again. Uh, I'm exceptionally confident in Christ. I'm exec exceptionally confident in the one in whom I have believed. And I'm convinced and I'm persuaded that he's able to guard what has been entrusted to me and what I've entrusted to him. The very work of God in me to change my life until that day, until the day of judgment, the day when we all appear in the presence of Christ. So Paul sees the grace of God in Christ as personally guarding and protecting the saving work that has been at work in him in his life. 
And he understands and is convinced that 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 guarding is going to take place all throughout the rest of Paul's life and has been all throughout the duration of Paul's life in terms of the dangers that Paul has faced, uh, the suffering that he's endured, the fighting of the spiritual warfare, and even unto the execution that is coming under the Roman Empire. Confidence that the spirit of the living God is going to preserve the grace that has been at work in him. Paul trusts that. Now, why? Why could Paul be so confident that the work of Christ was going to completely protect him? Because Paul understood that Christ not only did his cross work for us as a high priest who offers up an offering for sinners, but Christ continues as the high priest in heaven, making intercession on behalf of those for whom he died. Listen to what Hebrews 7, 25 says. Consequently, he, meaning Christ, is able to save to the uttermost. Incredible words. Christ is able to save to the uttermost those who draw to draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. That was Paul's confidence. That's why he knew that he would endure to the end because Christ was constantly praying for him. That's why we can sing, we know whom we have believed, and we are persuaded that he is able to keep that which we've committed unto him against the day. Now, the second way that Paul speaks to Timothy addresses the protection of grace, which we commonly call the perseverance of the saints. But here's how Paul expresses it to Timothy, verse 13 and 14. He says, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So what Christ guards, we are likewise to guard. Uh, it is the good deposit of both the content of the gospel as well as the in working in our lives of the grace of the gospel. It's no good guarding the truth of what you are believing and teaching unless you are also guarding the working of that truth in one's own heart and life. So you may be out there guarding the truth of the gospel, uh, saying all sorts of things about why it's true and, and defending it and so forth. But if you're not also guarding the work of the gospel in your own heart and life, then that's a serious deficiency and a serious contradiction. So Paul is saying to Timothy, guard that which is at work within you. Paul exhorts Timothy then to do this by following the pattern of sound words, the words which Paul has taught him, uh, to follow them in his personal relationship with Christ, that is the faith and love that are in Jesus, and Paul is telling Timothy to live by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling Holy Spirit, because it's going to be the power of the Spirit's presence that will enable Timothy to properly guard his own faith, his own salvation, his own walk with Christ. Or to put it the way Paul has stated this protection in two places in the book of Philippians, the preservation 
of the Spirit, Philippians 1.6. For he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. That's the preservation of the Holy Spirit. But then the perseverance of the saints, chapter 2, second half of verse 12 and 13, where Paul says, work out your own salvation in fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's the perseverance of the saints. So think about this, several statements here that describe this relationship of the preservation of the grace of God, the perseverance of the saints in the grace of God. We believe in Christ because it's God who gave us the faith to believe. We love him because he first loved us. We persevere because the Holy Spirit is preserving us. We follow Christ because Christ has prayed for us to have persevering faith. Now, we can wrap it up this way by saying that biographical theology has definite lessons for us. The work of grace is the personal working of God through Christ in our lives by the presence of the Holy Spirit. God writing the story of the gospel into our own story. God writing his story into our story so that he's also writing our story into his story. So that we understand that the theology that we confess and believe is deeply biographical. It's biographical in the life of God incarnate in this world and life of Jesus. It's biographical in the stories that we read of all the great saints of the Old Testament. It's biographical as we read Paul writing to Timothy and Paul testifying constantly about the greatness of a relationship that God has designed, the greatness of the grace that works within us as believers to save us, a grace that constantly points to a God who personally cares for us, personally loves us, and who has personally given his utmost, the sacrifice of his son, in order to accomplish his highest good in our lives. Therefore, we must always be able to say in total truth, I am not ashamed of my testimony about Christ. May we always have utmost confidence that the purposes of God's grace are at work within our lives, leading us to do all the good that we can. And may we never lose the confidence that Christ will keep us safe until that day. Amen. Let's pray. Father, help us to trust you, to trust Jesus, to trust the work of your Holy Spirit. And then help us to thank you, to thank you for the grace that has purposed not only our rescue from sin, but the redirection of our lives in a holy calling. Help us to always be grateful that the grace that has saved us is a grace that protects us. And you've done all of this for us in your son, the Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. It's appropriate then that the hymn that we would conclude with uh, is taken specifically out of verse 12. The hymn writer says, 
I know not why God's wondrous grace to me he has made known, nor why unworthy Christ and love redeemed me for his own. I know not how the saving faith to me he did impart, nor how believing in his word wrought peace within my heart. I know not how the spirit moves, convincing men of sin, revealing Jesus through the word, creating faith in him. I know not what of good or ill may be reserved for me of weary ways or golden days before his face I see. I do not know when my Lord may come at night or noonday fair, nor if I'll walk the veil with him or meet him in the air. But I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Amen. Brothers and sisters, receive these final words then as our good words from God to send us forth this day. Be at peace among yourselves, brothers, while you admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. He who calls you is faithful, and he will surely do it. Amen.